Uh, good evening. Thank you for coming along to uh, this uh, further uh, event organized by the Middle East Center here at LSE. <clears throat> I should introduce myself as uh, Charles Tripp, not from LSE, but from Up the Road uh, School of Oriental and African Studies. But more importantly, uh, I'm here to introduce uh, our guest speaker this evening, Professor Roger Owen, who's uh, professor at um, emeritus at Harvard University, was also, of course, at uh, Oxford University, uh, and uh, who will be speaking this evening on the modern Middle East studies as a distinct intellectual field. And anyone, and I imagine most people in this room, are well aware of uh, Roger's prodigious and uh, extraordinarily uh, interesting output. We'll know there's scarcely anybody better equipped than he to talk about uh, the Middle East studies as a distinct intellectual field, as a distinct intellectual field that is that distinguishes it to some, some extent from regular area studies by being multidisciplinary uh, and yet concerned about a region. And as you will know, uh, Roger himself begins as uh, an economic historian um, and maybe uh, continues as an economic historian, but at the, on the way, of course, also writes on uh, politics, political science, and most boldly of all, uh, became a, um, uh, a political biographer of Lord Cromer. Uh, which, as we know, uh, politician, uh, people working on politics rather than perhaps historians treat with considerable caution, but he pulled it off in the most uh, amazing way. Most recently, of course, uh, he's uh, written and published the book The Rise and Fall of Arab Presidents for Life, and, as we know, their fall ended with their lives in some cases, uh, but not all yet. So uh, Roger is going to speak for about uh, three quarters of an hour or so, and then we'll have time for questions and discussion. Roger. Uh, thank you so much for coming, and uh, needless to say, it's, uh, very, I'm very pleased to be back in London and, uh, uh, and back talking to an audience of um, many people I seem to recognize, and some must have come to hear what I have to say, so um, that's very nice, and uh, let's hope that uh, uh, I can also generate a reasonable discussion. If anybody can't hear me, please raise their hand or shout or something or other. So um, I want to begin by saying everything has a history. And that's what something I learned from um, an old and remarkable colleague at St. Anthony's long ago called Theodore Zeldin, who interrupted a book that he was writing about Napoleon III to become interested in all kinds of things that went on to such an extent that when he asked me what the title should be, it was Here Comes Everybody, and I think it was Here Comes Everything. He had been into, he was one of the first people who were interested by the, influenced by the French notion of total history. And he also, are you okay, Sammy? Can you hear? Yeah. Yeah, sure, good. Um, uh, so, and he said something about the history of emotions had not caught up with the, uh, historians hadn't caught up with the emotions and he thought there's a history of father-son's relationships and so on. So that's why I start. Everything has a history and um, it should be part of every introductory course 
I think it's better understood in the UK than I think uh, where um, there are histories of, of the Middle East Centre at St Anthony's and there are histories of St Anthony's College and so on. But what I want to present is not just, is the history of a practice, not just the history of ideas, what constitutes this thing called a field, but uh, the, history of, the history of how we do it in a particular kind of way and how we relate to other area studies who are in this same thing called a field. So I'm going to supplement this with thoughts from my own personal experience as a graduate student at Oxford between 1960 and 64, and a teacher 1964 to 93 before I translated myself to Harvard. So in more, I was in more or less at the inception of the object of today's history, that is of the history of what if most of us do that is, we do something called modern Middle East studies, well, when I say us, some of us anyway, uh, people like me, in places called centers, the Center for Middle Eastern Studies. And I'll do this by the notion, central notion of fields and centers, which I've adapted from physics and from the French post-World War II notion, as developed by Foucault and Bourdieu, and so a coherent body of knowledge defined by the center and in constant relationship with other fields that have come to make up area studies based on a practical interest in the language, history, politics, society, economic systems, and so on, of groups of non-European uh, societies. So a field is a bounded field of studied, and it is defined by the center. That's the whole point. And the fact that we have centers makes that rather nice, that, that the knowledge and the practice and the history and the networks are... Uh, devolve um, are created at the center and one is much less interested in boundaries and what whether, you know, whether this or that constitutes part of our field the, 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 the center comes first um, so I have no particular interest in boundaries or the activities of gatekeepers patrolling boundaries you know, people ask you from time to time is this in Middle Eastern studies and is that not that doesn't seem to be a particularly interesting question defining what looking at it from the boundary point of view. The history comes from certain pioneers who I shall talk about who, who, from, who radiated, radiated from centers and were connected to other centers and that's how one should conceive of the field. Um, it's also a very un-French pursuit. I was listening to a colleague of mine called Nadine Mayoshi the other day in America who talked about something called mandate studies, which she and Peter Sluglert said they invented at the French, the Institut Francais in Damascus in 1963. So that's a different way of doing a field. And they invented the field and they said, this low, this field of mandate studies will come into existence and it will be history from the bottom up and it will be people's history and it will be everything that we believe as though you could somehow bring it into creation just like that and I'm going to tell the alternative story about how it came into um, uh, came to being in bits and pieces over time also two other caveats I shall be talking about the English speaking world different outside it's interesting to speculate why this particular field of modern Middle East studies is so much an Anglo-American concern and why people like Jacques Berck, when they had good students, sent their students to Oxford to work with, or André Roumont, to work with Albert. And I think it was that the hold of 
what we, after Edward Said, called old-fashioned old Orientalism was very much stronger on the continent than in it, in it, it is here. And to illustrate this was a story which isn't quite apropos, but speaks of German Orientalism. When I uh, met once the famous um, Goitein, uh, who was then, uh, yeah, oh, uh, I've forgotten his first name, Goitein, anybody helping me? No. Uh, Professor Goitein said, tell me, Professor Owen, why are you studying the 18th century? Because from his point of view, all that was dark and decline. It was the old model of a field that was built on a knowledge of the languages, but one in which believed that the um, Babel history had or the creative thought in the Middle East ended about 1400 or 1300 and something or other. And we were up to no good studying the 18th century and the 19th century because it was of no interest whatsoever. So it's the English-speaking world where I think, perhaps people will disagree with me, whether a hold of old-fashioned Orientalism and philology was um, slightly less than it had been in um, Europe, in France and Germany. And that's something to do with the remarkable efforts of the hero of my story, who is Sir Hamilton Gibb, who was an Orientalist himself, but as a result of being in the Middle East during the Second World War and other influences, which I'm less sure of, said that there should be a modern field and it should be interdisciplinary and all the kinds of things. And he, as it turns out, established what turned out to be our practice, which our practice was that we should all know languages, we should all live in the Middle East for at least two years, and we should also be social science or historians, because for some reason or other, as I shall come on into a moment, Sir Hamilton Gillip believed history was a science rather than what at the Harvard History Department we think is history as a set of stories. And by the Middle East, um, I mean what I mean, and I'm going to talk about um, uh, not how we take the Middle East usually, which is the four main language groups, Farsi, Persian, um, Hebrew, Israeli, or, or wherever, whatever Israel was before it was Israel, um, Arabic and Turkish, and concentrate mainly on the Arabic story because I think that's where most of the uh, modern Middle East studies goes on because of the large number of Arabic countries and because most people from the Middle East itself, from the Arab world itself, only study their own country. So it's studying the whole Arab world and that's what we try to do and of course that's large and involves generalizations. But that was studying the Arab world through um, Arabic and the Arabic countries, including those of North Africa. Although there was a missing link and one of the things I remember long ago, because I'm so old, was the arrival in um, Oxford of Israeli students like um, Gabriel Pitterberg and others who had been trained, oh well, to begin with Moshe Maoz and others, who had been trained at in Jerusalem in the four languages, Turkish, I mean, they, were, they, they were philologists and um, they were knowledgeable of the four main Middle Eastern languages, but for one reason or other, maybe because they'd been in Israeli military intelligence or something or other, they were interested in what we call the modern world, that is, anything that happened after Napoleon invaded Egypt in um, 1798. 
Okay. And the final introductory point, um, I want to look at the organization of this field in terms of its origin, the context and pioneers, and then secondly in terms of its defining features such as its practices in terms of how, it is, how, it, how people are trained, what they study, how they go about the work of study, research, teaching and research. I mean other people like um, my friend Zach Lockman have written about um, Middle East studies in terms of Orientalism, in terms of ideas, but I think this notion of practice which comes I think from the general catalogue of all things French um, is an important thing that we don't often think about, how we actually go about the business of studying this region which nobody tells us to study and maybe the people of the region don't wish to st us to study in the first place, how we do that and how the practices developed over time. And um, there are two other important notions. One is the notion of coming of age, which I arbitrarily talk about as happening in our field in 1990. I mean, roughly the first stirrings of modern Middle Eastern studies are late 50s, early 60s. And by about 90, 1990, one can talk about it as having been sufficiently institutionalized. It has its own association, the Middle East Studies Association. It has its own set of practices. It has its own sources of funding and so on. That's what I call coming of age. And then there's a final thing, two things. One is self-consciousness. I think that's what I'm trying to add is that we are not, when we practice Middle East studies, necessarily clear about how our field came to, into existence. We don't have something to be conscious of. The field isn't sufficiently well defined that it becomes an object for us to think about and become uh, self-conscious about. And that would be the first bit. And the second bit we don't have yet is revisionism. As I shall argue, nobody has come along and said what you're doing is completely useless and it should be done in a different kind of way. There is revisionism in Egyptian history and, and, and in Turkish history where people confront the national narrative and talk about it as having these faults or that fault or these and it needs to be changed in various kinds of ways. But what we do, insofar as all you are present are people who do Middle East studies, we, are not, we haven't reached the revisionist phase and that I think would be the last. Somebody has to come along with a wholly new paradigm for um, studying his charts. Could you give me my, sorry, my water is escaping. Uh, this is a great test, of course. Is my hand steady enough? To, uh, more or less, yes. I have troubled and been subject to great harassment today and a mad Kurdish-Turkish taxi driver who GPS was only in Turkish who took me to the wrong place and so on. <laughs> so my hand may be shaking a bit from that or just... Um, time of day. Okay, now origins. Um, and as far as the origin, oh well, sorry, and I'm, I will concentrate on what I know, on one kind of institutional model. And I'm aware that at SOAS and in Durham and so on, there were other institutional models, <coughs> and people who related to the Middle East in different kinds of fields, but all had a great man of one kind or other somewhere in the history of it, and that's these are the people I call pioneers, the people who created the field in the various ways that I've tried to describe and will now elaborate upon. So the origins, I've just been at St. Anthony's and we just have um, 
a new biography of our rather strange and eccentric warden called Raymond Carr, which everything goes back to the Second World War, about which we know absolutely nothing at all because of the Official Secrets Act. So Albert Hurani, most people that I knew to begin with were in Cairo in Special Operations Executive in 19, 1942. But because of the Official Secrets Act, they never talked about it. And if you read Bernard Lewis's new, one of the pioneers too, you read his um, new uh, autobiography or written in association with his new wife, again, he says, I will, talk, I will say nothing about what I was doing in the Middle East during the war. So that's essential. It's, it's pretty okay to assume that everybody who went into area studies after the Second World War in the context of the Cold War had been in military intelligence. And so this idea that we could do something separate from these guys, we had to believe. And I think my mentor, Albert Hurani, who was the founder of the Middle East Center at Oxford, not the first director, um, thought that somehow by putting the center in Oxford at least we weren't in and out of the foreign office every day telling them what to believe or being asked but nevertheless that th this is where it comes from and it's that bit is rather difficult to talk about just assume that almost everybody who started in the Anglo-Saxon world was in Washington Cairo or somewhere providing intelligence in the larger effort of um, winning the war against Hitler's Germany, but also um, this is where some of the basic practices were established. The way Germany was studied in Washington by the people in OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, was total. They had sociologists, they had cultural people, they had doctors studying history, psychologists studying Hitler's psychology. It was interdisciplinary and they all brought their particular fields to the greater story of understanding Germany. And the people who then went out into the world in order to, the post-1945 world, had two missions. One was to establish, at least as far as Oxford was concerned, graduate studies. They wanted something, research and so on, not to be at the undergraduate level, which they recognized was dominated by what my old the warden of St. Anthony's was called Longer, the Republic of Tutors. You would get nowhere with undergraduates because the historians and so on would be all doing what they always did and very unanxious to do anything else and the people in the Oriental Studies and the Semitic departments would be doing what they always did. So you wanted to have graduate centers for the study of the Middle East um, and they, would, they tended to be st um, staffed by, as I say, people whose notion of how to conduct interdisciplinary studies had appeared first in the Second World War in quite another context. So um, some of us, you know, intelligence is a rather mixed word, which may be conducted intelligently, or it may be full of spooks, or it may be just gathering information, but um, it's an essential part of our story. The second thing is it had to be liberated from Orientalism and Oriental studies and I think that's, as far as I understand it, that's all the Middle East centres I've been in have been old, in old Victorian houses, two in Oxford and now one in, uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So the idea was that the centre would be physically removed from the Oriental Study or the Oriental Studies or the, Insti the Oriental Institute. 
alliances might be made, but what we did went on in a different building and in a different kind of way. And that was one way of trying to rid ourselves of um, a way of studying the Middle East which we regarded as old-fashioned and philological and based on text and so on and a knowledge of grammar and so on. And again, Sir Hamilton Gibb comes into that. He says, I can do the Orientalist bit. I'll tell you about the history of the Middle East up to 1800. Now go forth, young men. And in my story, these young men turned out to be Albert Arani and Bernard Lewis and do something different. Okay, so the huge importance of Hamilton Gibb. How many people have heard of Sir Hamilton Gibb? <laughs> oh, yes, yes, no. Anybody with white hair probably has, but um, anybody, young people, have you heard of Sir Hamilton Gibb? No. Uh, he's very much, I mean, he was, a, he was at uh, the School of Oriental African Studies before the war. He learned his Arabic here in the 1930s. He was born in Egypt, but he then went to Edinburgh University. I think, did he learn his Arabic at Edinburgh? I think he may have done, and then he came to teach at SOAS. And his idea was, as I say, I know what, I can tell you the history up to 1800, but after 1800, we need people who study, who are historians. Now, why he thought history, he said to Albert and to Bernard Lewis, I am an Orientalist, you are historians. He'd written a history, so I think he was, that's a strange bit of the story, that he thought that uh, history was a Geschichte, I can still say that because I'm very tired, but Geschichte, <laughs> a science, um, and therefore you had to do it scientifically. And he, I mean, strangely, as I shall now relate, um, the people he chose to do history, this history, Bernard Lewis and Albert Hurani, weren't really historians in any sense. They were historians of ideas. They weren't, and then, you know, as soon as this new study gets going, then not only is you need historians, but the Annales School comes along in France in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the 1950s, and history suddenly becomes very much more complicated. So you have a rather poignant story of, let us say, um, Sir Hamilton Gibb and somebody called Harold Bowen, who taught here long ago, now forgotten, a gentleman scholar, had a series called Islamic Society in the West. That's the old civilization model they'd learned from Toynbee and from Sprengler, that the history of the world is the history of civilizations and the history of the modern world is the impact of the West on the East, of one civilization on another. So that's how um, uh, that all started. Um, um, but then suddenly the history of what follows becomes something um, uh, much more complicated. And so we have, as everybody in our field may know, or Charles will certainly know, we have Gibbon Bowen, Islamic Society in the West, Volume 1, Part 1, Volume 1, Part 2. Where is Volume 2? Nobody could do Volume 2 because history had changed in such a way that it was beyond anybody's compass. Albert Arani was supposed to be doing some bit of Volume 2 and somebody Sammy will know called Albertine Jueda and they were supposed to be doing part of volume two. But history overtook them all. And perhaps that doesn't really matter. It stands, volume one, part two, stands as a kind of milestone of something that was once the way we thought about, or people who were doing it thought about the world, that um, 
Christian civilization was one thing, Islamic civilization was another, that the story of the civilizations, not the clash, the sort of hopeful interaction between civilizations was what we did and then suddenly if we, try, if we thought about it we couldn't do it anymore. And then I think um, we have the interdisciplinary ideal which develops from the war that every should, everybody should be conversant in both languages and in a social science or a history department and intermediaries between our department doing whatever we were doing, being historians and being social science and so on and this thing called the Middle East Center where we came together and used our discipline in order to better understand the Middle East. I mean we tried to do this but time is too short. In the end that particular model proved very difficult to um, uh, to uh, elaborate on as I shall try and say. Okay, That proved impossible in its most ambitious form partly because of time, partly because of the obduracy of the departments if I went back to my department of economics when I was at Oxford and tried to say there's this thing called the Middle East they would say get lost basically it's a kind of underdeveloping place which uh, we're not particularly interested in what you have to say about it because it doesn't have statistics and it doesn't have numbers and the kinds of things national income statistics that we need in order to understand whether it's developing or not and I think the other thing that people like uh, Sir Hamilton Gibb recognized was the importance and the greater openness of America and Gibb came to Harvard especially because he thought he could it was easier to infiltrate the American system and get funding than it was to infiltrate traditional centers of Orientalism in, uh, in, in Britain and there was more money and therefore Harvard became the model and one of the most interesting examples of how it was exported was exported to Chicago between 1966 and 68 by Gibbs student William Polk, Bill Polk, um, who carried that notion into the Chicago atmosphere of everybody was doing everything, they had committees and commissions and so on. They, they were talking to each other all the time in the Commission on Social Thought. So they were close together. And what Bill Polk added to that was he that you, the center, the point of the center was to do things that the other departments couldn't do and mainly he raised money. So if you were doing your interdisciplinary stuff in the Committee of Social Thought and you wanted to travel to the Middle East, you went to Bill and said, give me some money to go to Chicago. So it was a kind of, he was a facilitator. That was one early model. And then that stopped when Bill Polk went off to Washington in 1970. No, he went to Chicago in 68. And then he worked in 70 and now he knows all about things he learned about in Washington when he was there in the 1970s like nuclear proliferation and chemical warfare and uh, what he writes is absolutely wonderful for anybody who hasn't seen it. So what, uh, to get back to Sir Hamilton Gibb, he appoints Bernard Lewis and Albert Hurani as central figures in the new, new, new generation and then trains them and this is the bit that I find absolutely fascinating and they never tell you about he gives them an ex a language examination, Gibb. Albert gave me a language examination, but Gibbs would have been much more thorough. And of course discovered that Albert didn't know Arab, Arab grammar, not surprisingly. And Bernard Lewis's Arabic was sort of okay, but still he, so he devised training schemes. So Bernard Lewis was sent off to Turkey to learn Turkish and fell, got into the archives through Hamilton Gibbs 
because um, Hamilton Gibb happened to know the British ambassador. So he was the first into the impenetrable Turkish archives, and that's how that all... And then he decided he didn't like archives and became something else. And Albert was sent off to Egypt to improve his Arabic, and then to Paris. Um, he was the son of a Lebanese, but his, you know, according to Gil, Gibb, he, his Arabic was so completely hopeless that he had to start again. So he was sent off, and, he, and I think, although he never talked about it, because of course people don't like to admit that they have to be trained and these things happen to him, and, and he also met his wife during this time, so it's a personal autobiography which you have to, very difficult to recover. But I think it was while he was in uh, reading Arabic and improving his Arabic that he read Rashid Rida and uh, and uh, Muhammad Abdu and the guys who go and Jamaluddin Afghani that go into his book Arab Thought in the Israel Liberal Age. I mean, it's, it's mysterious. Albert was always interested in Isnads and so on, and he was always getting people to Oxford to explain what he called their intellectual formation. And that's absolutely fascinating. How any of us come to believe as we what we believe. You know, how do we do that? I mean, you're, some of you are sitting here, so that's your story at the moment. Um, a Charles Tripp will come into your story and various people when you come to tell it. But these pe they covered their tracks very well. He never told us, Albert, how he came to We had to reconstruct it, how he, what he did during the war and what he did after the war and where he learned Arabic. And Of course, it was a bit embarrassing, I suppose. But there is also a feeling that... Uh, among intellectuals, I suppose, that they want ideas to leap fully formed from their heads and they just sit and write and uh, there's no training that goes into it. Um, and the other thing about, um, I mean, I've said the bit about how, the, how um, Albert and the chosen successors of Gibb were, became historians but didn't, either didn't want to be historians or were overwhelmed by total history. So. Albert's contribution to Gibbon Bowen Part 2, which was on the Fertile Crescent, never got written. First, because he couldn't learn enough Turkish, and secondly, you know, he was over. It was just that moment. The amateurs who could go out and write histories were overtaken by the people who needed to make their way around um, huge archives, like the ones in Egypt and the one in the Ottoman Empire, but also were taken, overtaken by other things which they couldn't cope with. So they got by writing, but they were always, as I say, not terribly anxious to um, explain all the difficulties and the limitations of um, what was happening. And the real excitement for Albert was going to Chicago in 1960 and the Committee of Social Thought. That was the model of economists and social scientists meeting every day and uh, talking to each other and exchanging ideas within an acceptable format of chat and so on. Um, uh, but it was much more difficult to... Um, institute within the British system. So they, I think what the first generation of pioneers did after, after Hamilton Gibb was to set themselves up as facilitators. They raised money, they recruited, they found colleges. When, when you had joint appointments like I did, I was at the Middle East Centre and I had to be in a college, um, St. Anthony's. So you had to you had to spread your Middle East people into departments. That was the idea. They had to be both. That was both economists and Middle East people. So that was what they were doing. And they also established a set of very personal practices which are worth thinking about. For them, the open door. 
You could always get an appointment with Albert Hurani. That was part of it. It may work. Some pe I hope people tell me that there are other places where that's done. Um, it's not just you sign up, but you can, you know, very often you could knock on the door. The professor's library. I, I still have the professor's library. People come in and I say, have you seen this book? Then there comes the awkward moment I remember with Albert. He said, have you seen this book? With great enthusiasm, because he was, that's the other thing you have to be. You have to be enthusiastic. You have to encourage. You have to find, you have to tell everybody that what they're doing is very important. So he, sh he came up to me and, have you, said, have you seen this book? And then I didn't know what to do about that. Should I take the book from him? No, the book went back on the shelf. But that was part of the business. You waved books around because in those days your Middle East library in that particular university was probably better than the university's modern Middle East library. And if anybody ever goes to Harvard and goes to see the Gibb Memorial Library, you see the working library of a great Orientalist. It's full of theses in Arabic and English um, to my dear professor. You know, that's how it all began. Pause for more water. Um, and then, so they establish a set of practices, that that's the encouragement, the open door, the excitement, languages, time in the Middle East. And the main thing Albert did with me was to find funds to go to America. So that, you know, that's one of the things you had to go about. And in order to go about in those days, you had to have money to go about and traveling fellowships and so on. And contacts wherever you were in the Middle East and open doors and networks. So that's how centers operate too. Centers are the center of networks, and the centers are connected by networks. So all the great men of that generation, you know, if you go to Chicago, you meet von Grunebaum, or, you know, you're, you're immediately connected and the door is open, and if you're a student, you're immediately seen. There's no treatment of students as um, annoying. Well, of course, I mean, you may in your head think the students are extremely <laughs> annoying, but... Uh, um, you treat them as equals as you can and you try and facilitate, facilitate and encourage. Maybe this is a rosy view and people will challenge that, but that is how I remember it. Um, and then you create a system for training. And this had various satisfactory reasons, things, one or not. First, you have an MA. That's the training degree, two years which originally was a very lazy kind of thing. Nobody quite knew what an MA was. It was called an B-Phil when I was first Bachelor of Philosophy. A two-year degree, but it was recognized that there were certain kinds of people who weren't going on to be academics, who needed a bit of Arabic and a bit of this and a bit of that in order to become bank managers or journalists or something or other. And just a few of them would go on and do PhDs because uh, people didn't believe in doing PhDs in Oxford in those days. The only people who had doctorates were either German refugees or scientists but gradually that comes to be the training you proceed from an MA to a, a PhD or a D something or other and that has to be facilitated too but it's open-ended and there's no uh, there's no sense of quite what you needed to do to be anything it had to be created de novo as you might suppose and then uh, the terrible thing is the seminar um, because that's thought to be where you do interdisciplinary stuff. And in Oxford, the seminars are always on Fridays, because then the um, foreign office people and the people we called old Middle East hands 
with names like Sir Clement Scrine and Sir Somebody Somebody or other came and talked about when I was in Cairo that's how it all began and of course that told us a bit but not very much but the seminars when you think of the German seminar in which the professor has students and he says you do this and that the Gibb model which is that anybody can tr study anything whether it um, is whether the professor knows anything about it or not I remember a young Saudi woman saying I'm going to to me, I want you to be my supervisor of a thesis about the unfortunate lot of women in Saudi Arabia. And I said, I've never been to Saudi Arabia. I know nothing about women in Saudi Arabia. There's no literature on women in Saudi Arabia. She said, I still want you to be my professor. So it was very haphazard, and the seminar had the same kind of thing. It had no rules. Somebody talked, a few desultory questions, and everybody went off to dinner. Um, I hope it has improved at SAS. <laughs> It's a more regular, institutionalized, academic occasion. But in those days, it was just um, stories, as I say. And there was, that was, you know, I remember people who were in interesting places, like um, um, the younger um, Wingate, who had been... Uh, Catherine, you'll be bearing with me, because I said this the other day. Um, uh, who had been in... He was the governor of Najaf in 1919, and his first job was to get the coffin caravans organized from Iran, which had been interrupted by the First World War. So, you know, suddenly I knew something about Najaf. I mean, how would I have known anything about Najaf and coffin caravans? Then I went there, and of course, every time, if you go to Najaf, then you see taxis going along with coffins on the roof, and you have some sense of, you know, you have to be buried in Najaf if you're a pious believer, or even sometimes you go there before you're dead in order to die outside the shrine. That's what you do. And how would I know that? Well, anyway, um, if you know that already, young people, then you're very lucky to have been taught well about these kinds of things. Um, and it was hard work because the colleagues are obdurate, what Ralph Darwin called, called the Republic of Tutors, but departments don't want to do anything. So Albert, he was exhausted by fighting the university in order to get Middle East studies here and there. Never cracked the history department. They never had a the, the Oxford History Department, they never had a, in my day, they never had a course in Middle East history or anything of that kind. It was all, what in America, what do we call it? Europe and the West? No, America and Europe or something like that. Anyway, I mean, the history of the world, as we know, is the history of America and Europe in those circumstances. So struggling with these people who would be required to do something else was difficult. World history came along, that was okay, because of course people all think that world history is, my colleagues are all now very interested in material things, like if I tell them about the Sakir and the Shadouf and very, how you raise water in Egypt, they get terribly excited about that. But that, that, was, that was not them, they weren't in the slightest bit interested. And so people like Albert made strategic allies, and there were two sets of allies, I must hurry along because time is gone. One with the anthropologists, they've always been our dearest friends in Middle East studies, because they do roughly the same things as us, but they have theory. And then Clifford Geertz came along, and he also wrote very well. So everybody was keen on doing that kind of thing, what it was like to study the, the souk in, uh, in Rabat or wherever he did. Rabat? Marrakesh? Rab Rabat, I think. Anyway, so the anthropologists were our allies. And then Albert went back in time and found via a shared interest in Max Weber, which shows very much in the, up in the Islamic history, 
the Islamic City volume of 1965, a Weberism which he shared with Samuel Stern, who was a refugee, a Jewish German Orientalist, who was old-fashioned in the sense that um, he hadn't read much after about, I don't know, published in the Arab world since 1500. But the Weber was enormously important as a way of thinking about this thing called the Islamic City and why it was supposed to be different from the European city. And that generated a quite, at that time, quite an interesting discovery. And then Albert Arani himself taught himself Islamic history backwards, which I think is what I've done. And I think I would still argue that it's better to know nothing about Islamic history to begin with. So you're free of everything. But then you rapidly realize, as Gibb would have told us, that if you know about the 19th and 20th century, you have to go back 18, 17, 16 to the Prophet Muhammad or wherever. But um, in Albert's case and in my case, we, we, we did that backwards. And then... Um, you also need, um, you need books. You need a canon of great books. And when we started, there were no books. I mean, there are a few books by people called George Kirk and so on, The History of the Middle East. But they were generally people who, like Albert, it was the liberal age, and there was a good time in the Middle East when everybody was liberal, and then revolutions came, and they were upset. So that actually um, gave an opening to people like my dear friend Sami in the, in the audience and Sami Zubeda and myself and Talal Assad um, to, through an interest in third world revolution, through an interest in anti-colonialism, to meet actually with young people from the Middle East and I, it may be one of the few moments when we had a common language. The common language was a kind of um, political economy, a kind of Marxist, but it meant that there were people from the Arab world who we could talk to who shared the same vocabulary and who we met and shared the same project. That isn't true anymore and it would be interesting to know whether. I think there is a revival. I think we do have a shared political vocabulary which is now, the, in the history department anyway, a political economy of material, the interest in material history. But uh, at that time, um, to find people who were also interested in in the, so the societies and the politics of the, the people we were studying. So we weren't just studying them. It was a brief moment of partnership, which hasn't always been revived. And again, I hope perhaps it goes on here. But uh, you know, nobody asked us in the Middle East to study them. And you, know, you, have to be, you have to be humble about that. And one of the checks is to write, I've always thought, is what I write about the Middle East, does it make sense to the people in the Middle East? That's my audience, my best audience. Although life being what it was and the fact that middle people in what happened to Arab universities and they have no money to travel and conferences and so on makes that kind of informal understanding more difficult. You know, we, we meet people from the Middle East who are here speaking English and studying, but um, to actually talk to people on a regular basis at Cairo University or something. That's much more difficult. And being on the left and being interested in Nasserism and so on was a great help for a while. And I'm not quite sure what we, uh, what we share anymore. But that's um, something that um, I think what was called the Hull Group and our association with uh, 
people from the Middle East who had a shared interest in understanding Middle East in revolutions and in um, the critique and where we go and the critique of the old ways of thinking about these things um, was um, enormously important for a while and then we also made an alliance with various Turkish friends who had also come, to, come together like Shalar Kader and Huri Islamoglu and so on who were interested in a critique of Ottoman history and the standard view of Ataturk and all that kind of thing so that was that moment um, uh, and so I think now just com the coming of age having said something about the history and how this would have looked in 1990 is that we have certain characteristics of our field, a joint four, we have a joint canon of books now which we can point to, which talk about Middle East and its history in a sort of social science world history way that um, is recognizable to people from Latin American studies and elsewhere. We're doing the kinds of things that people do in other so-called fields. Um, field in French is called champ, I find that very you know, it's not a kind of Frenchy word that Bourdieu invented, but it is a bounded area of study, a champ. Um, so in other fields, we have our practices, we have our training, uh, we have our institutions like MESA, we have our journals, we have a critical mass of people in institutions and connections, and I think we have a common language now, not always, which is not a language of ideas, but a language, a material language of how things are done, how institutions work in a quite basic way. Um, but what we lack, I think, is self-consciousness. We're still not aware of ourselves as an object. This is perhaps a French notion, but in order to be aware of something, it has to be constituted. Ah, that's a word I learned from Sammy. Constituted, it has to be constituted as a field, an object of study. So that's what I'm talking about. In order to be self-critical, we have to know what our field is, what its history is, and how we can engage with it as critics of it. Um, and we, but we also need to know how we differ from other area studies. And it's very interesting talking to anybody in Latin American studies. Anybody in Latin American studies here? Nobody? Do you have Latin American studies? No, perhaps you don't, so I, I don't know. Anyway, they were all interested in peasants and the plight of the peasants under the latifundia. So quite a different history. Latin American studies is peasant studies. We learnt a lot about that from Theodore Chenin and other people who did peasant studies. Um, and they, they were also much more in touch with Latin Americans. Spanish is maybe an easier language to share. They were progressives. You felt the same as them. They were central to the history of Latin America in a way that... Uh, so that's, that's another model, and if we knew something about uh, Chinese studies, we would find another model. So that we need to know not only about our own field as an object and how it's constituted and so on, and what we do and how we do it, and, but what all those other people do. And so as should be, at least we should know what's going on in African studies, whatever. Af well, I don't like the idea of African studies because it suggests that Africa is a single place, but anyway, whatever it's called, probably is called sub-Saharan studies or something. And um, what else am I going to do? Two more things. We're very bad at collective projects, which um, is the, the curse of the Anglo-Saxon world. Everybody wants to be original. Nobody is taught. Scientists are taught how to work as teams, but we don't work on collective projects very easily, and we need to do that. 
We have lost touch with Arab intellectuals because of what has happened in the Middle East, because of what's happened in Middle Eastern universities, because how Middle East study, how there isn't much Middle East studies going on in the Middle East. There's Egyptian studies, but very few people except at the um, at, uh, uh, institutes of Arabic studies do Arab studies, and very few people in the in the Mashrek do Maghrebi studies and so on. So we still need to find uh, the people who are doing the same kind of Middle East studies in the Arab world to talk to. Turks, of course, that's much easier, although Ottoman studies has become much more complicated and, uh, because Ottoman studies extends to the Arab world and that's an underdeveloped study. But now, we're doing the, now we have the anniversary of the First World War. All that is coming together rather well what uh, Jamal Pasha was doing in Syria. There's a new biography of Jamal Pasha, which is just wonderful about, I mean, he was not a very nice man, but nevertheless, he was the dictator of Syria for three or four years, and that's all central to the way in which Syrians think about themselves and Lebanese think about themselves. And finally, we need revisions and new directions, which I will say nothing about, because I can't think of any of them, but uh, you tell me. Thanks, Charles. <laughs> Oh, no, I'll, why don't I stand here as I'm on my feet? So, yes, Roger's very kindly, thank you very much, very kindly said that he would uh, answer questions and uh, any points that the audience wants to make. So, uh, we can open the floor for discussion. When you do ask questions, could I just ask you to identify yourself and, if possible, to try and make it a question uh, that, uh, that yeah. uh, might provoke an answer? So oh, and can you stand? I mean, yes, so everybody see. can hear, yeah. I'm sorry. Or I there is a microphone traveling around. I think. Oh, good. Yeah. Hi, Professor Owen. Thank you very much. Oh, that hello. was very enjoyable. Yes. Um, my name is Eve Gutterman. Um, I'm a master's student here at the London School of Economics. And mm -hmm. I wanted to know what advice you would give to a young, ambitious, interdisciplinary, Middle Eastern, center-seeking uh, student looking to go into the field of, of Middle Eastern studies, what that means, you know, as you've described it. Is that a recruiting question? No. <laughs> no, it's a genuine experience-based question, if you would. I mean, mind. who our best students are? Um, no, maybe a piece of advice that you wish someone had told you when you were kind of moving through that process? Well, I think the three things, which is um, go to the Middle East and live there for at least two years, if you can, um, th th this is our practice. Make sure you know the languages well and social sciences well. And then you're starting. And actually, most of the people who now apply to Harvard to do Middle East studies do all that. It's just happened. You know, that, that particular bit, the learning, the being, and the social science bit, at least knowing some social science, is already there. So if you want to prepare yourself, that's what the, that's the triptych you should do. You have to live there, learn the languages, and think about them in a social science-y way. Thank you. The microphone. It's Isan Mohammed from uh, uh, Queen Mary University. I'm doing IR there. Can I start by apologizing to Professor for 
the Urdil, the Kurdish driver, or taxi driver, put him through. <laughs> I think he was a one-off. I can't imagine, I think. A taxi driver from hell, yes. <laughs> Being Kurdish, I feel like I have to say that. Oh, no, no, I don't think we blame him at all. I think, uh, yes. My question is in relation to the Middle Eastern study, which uh, emphasized mainly on the Arabic, Persian, mm. and Israeli affair. Mm. Uh, in light of what's going on in Middle East, is there no time to expand that field to include new players uh, like Kurdish people, which they are going through revival? Um, well, I don't know how you do that formally. And of course, you, you know, one of the problems is, um, I think, Longs Oriental in, at the Sorbonne or wherever it was in Paris taught 200 languages at one stage. And now we not only have a demand at Harvard and no doubt other places, you, you want colloquial as well because the young people want to be actually, you know, they discover that classical Arabic doesn't allow them to communicate with anybody and they want to go out and be journalists or something or other. So it's, it's enormous at a time of contracting uh, of, uh, funds and I think you have, you know, it's much more is on you and going and doing it on your own. I don't think the courses and so on can be put on in the same kind of way. You know, now that I've retired, there's nobody doing modern East, the political history of the Middle East, modern Middle East at Harvard. And there's a huge demand. I mean, we think 100 people would take a course on political history if it existed, but it doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, my name is Valeska Huber from the German Historical Institute. Hello. Oh, Valeska, hi. Hi. Yes. Um, I thought it was most interesting what you said about uh, the intelligence involvement of mm. a lot of the founders um, of modern Middle Eastern studies and mm. I thought maybe you could also expand on the processes of decolonization and the end of empire taking place at the same time mm. as the discipline was established both in Britain and in, in America. I mean probably two very mm. different set of stories. Um, well I should have said more about that. Of course it, the, at that time it was the Cold War. So the people who had been doing their stuff about Germany and I suppose Italy up to a point then thought in order to confront the Soviet menace in non-European countries, we need to understand not only that, but we also of course need to understand Middle East communist parties in Sudan and Iraq and places like that because everybody thought they were the agents of the, whatever it was, the Comintern or something rather. And that's where the money came from, of course, in the 1950s. And the Hater Committee in England in 1958 is, slight, and the, is slightly different because it made the larger case, which some people were making, that it is good for America, let us say, or good for Britain to have an educated population who know about the Middle East. It's also good to have centers where businessmen and bankers and journalists can go in order to understand, make contacts and so on. So. I think the, the, the big money came in a Cold War context. It was government money. Not necessarily we should all go out and spy or anything. I mean, I don't think anybody was going to thought that we were going to, NASA, NASA was going to reveal all his secret documents to anybody who went there, but, or even that we could get anywhere near. I mean, the, you know, just as an example of how rare it is, I was talking to my friend Bob Springboard the other day, and he went, he learned, now this is a good story, encouraging everybody. He went and became a waiter at the Hilton Hotel, the old Hilton Hotel in Cairo in 1975, to learn better Arabic. And he discovered through being a waiter 
that behind the reception desk is where all the Mahabharati, the secret people were there, who had nothing to do at all because they'd bugged all the hotel, you know, and there was no secrets in the hotel, in the Hilton Hotel for anybody to discover. But he knew all the uh, security lieutenants and uh, captains who then at some stage in the 1980s became colonels and generals. But I don't suppose any of you are lucky enough to um, be able to do that anymore. But that's, you know, that's um, where you need to be. You need to make friends with the rising generation, if you can, who then, you know, a friend of mine is Hez in Beblawi. I'm old enough to know the minister, the um, finance minister and then the uh, prime minister of Egypt quite well. Some of you may know General Sisi, although that's more difficult because he's never travelled out of Egypt, apparently. A field marshal who has never seen a field is how we describe him. <laughs> no, he isn't a field marshal yet, but he'll become one like uh, Abdul Haki Mama. Thank you. Mm. I was just reading recently a bug of Anthony Eden, who actually got a post at Oxford and okay. Arabic and Parsi. Anthony Eden. Can you Cambridge? Sorry. Oxford, Anthony was Eden. No, he no, I'm just. University. Anyway, sorry, I'm being. <laughs> no, he got a first, uh, Anthony Eden. And yes, he, I know who you're talking about. And he helped create the Arab League in 1945. And then he He was a reasonably successful foreign secretary of Suez, but I was just wondering whether he might have been, of all British states of the 20th century, having got a first in Arabic and Farsi, and in, in Oxford, intellectual feet not even for 25 years. And yet he led us into this blunder. I just thought, if you had any saying about that, but he, in terms of academic knowledge to them at least, he was probably the most qualified of all British states in the 20th century. Well, it depends what you mean by academic knowledge, of course. He, if Orientalism is a branch of academe, but it still thinks that the Arab world went wrong about 1500 and had barely recovered by 1956 and certainly shouldn't be in the hands of people like Colonel Nasser. So, you know, he, his knowledge was, had its limitations, I would say. Oh, he knew the Suez Canal was important, of course, but that's, um, yeah. Uh, um, my name is Randa Ashmawi, and I'm an Egyptian journalist. Uh, what, I, uh, what I was hearing from you is, uh, understandably, you... You are, uh, you are in the point of losing t a contact of interlocutor, uh, with interlocutors yes. in, in, in the Arab world, I mean in mm. Egypt. Which Academic uh, ones, certainly. Uh, yeah. Well, actually, they were not very helpful. Uh, I mean, academ the, the intelligentsia composed yes. by academics or uh, directors of strategic mm. studies, they all failed to, to, to predict uh, the developments uh, both in, in, in the Arab world and, and in the West. You, you know very well that uh, no one in the, in the world where it was able, from the world intelligence, was able to predict what took place uh, uh, three years ago. Uh, what, uh, what I'm, uh, my question is, uh, well, it is, uh, well, this transformation taking place uh, are creating a new a group of people who are not really uh, the intelligentsia, but they are more of the actors mm -hmm. uh, uh, promoting the changes. And uh, isn't it interesting, uh, while they are not, they don't have, the, the, they, are, they don't cre create theory about the, 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 the whole picture, to uh, ask them to speak about their own experience, because they are history makers, and they are mm. probably the best people to, to talk about uh, 
how they see the, the future. Yes. Well, I mean, it's, it's absolutely fascinating, as you know, and I think the, uh, you know, youth has been defined now, finally. I mean, youth is there as a category, and youth uh, and energy and so on, and you have to be under 40 to be in the, uh, the new constituent bit of the assembly in Egypt to be youth. I mean, it's a corporatist view of um, thinking about Egypt, um, but there are fascinating things going on in, uh, in uh, Tunisia and places like that. But I still think that um, I learned something from uh, my friend uh, Mustafa Nabli, who's an IMF person who came and talked before the Arab Spring. Uh, no, just after it was starting. And he said that um, uh, as soon as dictators are overthrown, you have a new constitution. There's something about a revolution, so you have a new constitution. In order to have a constitution, you have elections. If you have elections in Tunisia and Egypt after the fall of the dictators, they will be won by the religious parties. Liberals hope that the, liberal part, the, the religious parties will make a mess of things and then everybody will see that they have no answer and then liberals will come forward. So, you know, that's not a bad way of thinking about it, except in Egypt, Morsi was not given time to make a mess of things and, um, and the liberals didn't appear as an electoral force. But I think in, in, uh, you know, in Tunisia you can sort of work out that's how it's going on. So if you, these no if you use these notions of revolution and constitution and um, uh, validating new political orders through elections and the notion of legitimacy, I think we still have the tools to understand what's going on in those places. Um, I mean, Iraq and Syria, of course, we have to think about in another way. There's states where the central government can't control the country anymore, but that's a different way of thinking about it. Well, you have to tell that to the Americans. The British, are, we are very good at that. <laughs> you know, I think of the House, I mean, you know, it took 400 years in England at least, didn't it? So, and we don't have a constitution, so it, it's difficult to say, but we have to say it takes a very long time. I mean, I was say, talking earlier, excuse me, sir, about Saad, the role of Saad Zaglul in the Egyptian parliament in 1927. You know, he'd been chucked out of office in, because of the murder of Lee Stack in 1924, and he was the speaker. And he said to the chaps in parliament, you know, the waft people, now there's absolutely no point standing up and giving a two-hour speech. And there's absolutely no point when somebody is giving a two-hour speech shouting them down, you know, this is what you need to do. And you need people who do the nuts and bolts. And one of the nuts and bolts is, um, if you think of the eldest Miss Ganushi, I forget her name, who in the Tunisian election, because she'd worked for the Labour Party in, in West London, knew, and this strikes me with my stick, if you want the, the people with sticks to vote, you send them a car. If you want to see there's no hanky-panky in the... Uh, the ballot box place and people stuffing ballots, you appoint poll watchers. You know, this, is the, this is just as important as big ideas about uh, a democracy. It's the nuts and bolts that you need in order to practice it in any meaningful way. And it's not impossible to believe that that won't happen. But uh, I take um, uh, the Ganushi exile in, uh, in West London produced interesting results in Tunisia on just this, you know, how you do, do local elections, let's say. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, Professor, 
Oh, well, thank you for the wine-breaking um, uh, lecture you've given us. The premise of, of the lecture was the uh, intellectual field, mm -hmm. Islamic intellectual mm -hmm. field. This has not has now died with the demise of uh, Saddam and the demise, uh, gradual decimation of Syria and with the death of Nasser, which you don't seem to think highly of. Uh, obviously, uh, there, is, there is a perception in the West, as long as you, you can demean somebody, you'll eventually get to a point. We had last week, uh, allow me please to, uh, Mr. Paul Dana, who, who used to be the bureau chief for the BBC, mm -hmm. and every time he went anywhere, it preceded an uh, uprising or a fall of a, a regime mm -hmm. or a government mm -hmm. in the Middle East. You have spoken, spoken about the intelligence uh, organizations. This country maintains intelligence in all under, under the British uh, guises of the British Council mm -hmm. or in the American University. Uh, everybody seemed to think that the Arabs are incapable of running their own uh, affairs and that they need, they need to be guided by people in the West. You, not you personally, uh, obviously you've been to America, the average American would, know, would, would not know where the Middle East is. I would put it to you that had, had no, no interference and by, by the intelligence agencies, which you refer to mm. and which continues, this, this, the Middle East would have take, uh, got to a level of, of the, to, to where people were aspiring. Now, Iraq has been destroyed. Syria will soon be destroyed, which leaves Egypt backward in the hand of the uh, Islamic Brotherhood. Mm -hmm. Tunisia, which you, you praise, but, but no one mentions about the backward Saudis, the Kuwaitis, and the Gulf states. Can we, can we take that as a question then now? Uh, yes. No, I, I'm, having, I'm having to talk to the, Arab, the Harvard Arab Alumni Association about what the Middle East needs. And clearly, it needs not to be interfered with from outside. But if you, there's plenty of reasons why. I mean, the Middle East and North Africa are the nearest neighbors of Europe. Um, they were subject to various forms of colonial enterprise, the mandate system. Then there was Israel-Palestine. Then there was oil. So there are plenty of reasons historically, not just intelligent, but material neighbor interests about why the Middle East of all the parts of the non-European world has been the most interfered with. And what we would hope for is that they're allowed to get on with their own business. That's what they need. They need space. I have no project for them. Just leave them alone. And, um, and not tell them what to do. So you and I may well be on the same page. I don't know. But, uh, Excuse me. Uh, we, we, had, we need another question. Then, then Iraq and, and, and uh, the Middle East. One final question. You said you advised to the lady about going to the Middle East. I would ask her, to, when she goes to the Middle East, to try and... Let's Please. To respect the habits and ethics of the Middle East. You would not learn anything about the Middle Eastern people unless you respect their habits 
and their ethics and their religion. Well, I don't think it's simply respect. I think you have to understand that's what we do as academics and try and tell people who don't, who don't know about the Middle East where these things fit and why they happen. It's not just respect. Though some criticism is allowed too, I think, in all that. But um, I mean, that's our business. We are, we, are, we are not pontificating. We're supposed to be trying to understand some other people who haven't actually asked us to understand them in a way that is helpful to the British academic community. Yes. Hello, Professor Owen. Mm. Um, uh, my name is Mishana Hussein, and I just uh, completed my DPhil in international mm. relations at Oxford University. Mm. Professor Avishlein was my mm -hmm. uh, supervisor. Um, it's very nice to see you here. I missed your talk at the center on Friday, mm -hmm. so I'm glad I caught you here. More jokes then. <laughs> yes. Um, the question I had for you is whether you feel modern Middle East studies has in some way neglected um, to study the liberal impulses in the Middle East region. And, and do you think that that's, that explains this level of disconnect that scholars had um, at around the time of the Arab Spring? Um, and I would also raise the same question with, rega with regard to Iran and whether you think Iran has been neglected um, and whether that explains the, the disconnect um, that, that we see also on the political level. Um, thank you. Thank you. Well, I think, I mean, you, you can say we should be doing this, that, and the other, and I think there are not so many of us. And so, um, you know, naturally, there will be things left out, and it's your duty to, I mean, and our duty to try and fill in the gaps as best we can. I was talking about the Arab world. I mean, this, the story of Iran and understanding Iran and funding for things in Iran has, a, has its own separate history. And um, although we conventionally regard them, Iran is part of the Middle East and it is in some senses, in some ways it's not. It's part of the Afghan, Farsi, Indian Ocean world. So it's a, there's all kinds of demarcations that go on like that. But um, one of the things that um, we ask young people who are coming to do anything at Harvard is how would you, you know, what would your introductory course be? So think about that. I mean, you know, I think that's part of being a student and part of being a graduate student. How would you teach the subject? Not just how your professors teach it, but how would you teach it? And then we get something. And if they're missing things, I mean, they're huge missing things. You could say women's studies, cultural studies, Sammy does food studies. I mean, you know, there's huge areas of, for entrepreneurship. I used to think in our early days we could have a very good conference in Oxford for 500 pounds. We paid everybody's uh, train fares, they, we put them up in our houses, we got hold of a free room and we discussed something for an hour. You know, it's open to all of us to do that kind of thing. Choose a subject, get people together, it's very easy to do, um, and do it. Um, I think that's what you should be doing, if I may be so, um, whatever it is, um, dictatorial. Hello. Yes. Good morning, Professor. Uh, I ha I'm, uh, I my it's, it's my morning. Oh, no, somebody's morning. Yes. <laughs> there are two rival microphones working. <laughs> okay. Please. Uh, my name is Ahmed. I'm from the American University in Cairo. 
My question is, what do you picture the future of the religious parties in Egypt and probably Tunisia also? Are they going to modernize maybe an AKP style thing? Or are they simply going to go back backwards, ra radicalize more? Or are they not going to be part of the future political scene of Egypt? Egypt especially, this is Egypt specific. Thank you. Well, I think if you read, I mean, I think Hassan al-Banna was a religious genius, the founder of the Ikhwan, the Muslim Brothers. But he conceived of the Muslim Brothers as the conscience of Egypt and that they should be exemplary in their practice of Islam and then eventually um, all Egyptians would be reconverted to some notion of Islam. But then the trouble is that if you preach Islam in danger, then the young men say, what are we going to do about it? You tell us it's in danger. And then you get a secret organization and you say, we should go into politics and everybody else wants you to go into politics because you have the vote, you can tell people. So it's very difficult to be the conscience of the nation and very successful because you get pulled into politics and I would hope that the future of the Ikhwan and uh, the future of the uh, Nata would be much more along those lines, not running candidates but being more um, in you know, some notion of what Catholics do of being a conscience and not wanting to get in, knowing that if you get involved in politics, soldiers know that you get not you not only are found wanting but you get divided people try and divide you it's just the wrong model that they followed and of course who knows whether they'll get back to it but that's my reading of Dick Mitchell's wonderful book about uh, the Juan, the Society of Muslim Brothers you know, a social movement mosque orientated providing services for the poor doctors who wouldn't otherwise go and work in slums that I see as their role an exemplary role. Yes, Catherine. Hi, I'm Catherine Schwartz. I'm a, a student of yours. Um, my, my question was, given that Middle Eastern studies seems to come out of um, sort of Gib and people mm -hmm. finding value in disciplines mm -hmm. like history mm -hmm. and anthropology, but similarly an unwillingness on the part of or, uh, historians, for mm -hmm. example, to take Middle Eastern sort of history and make mm. it part of the faculty. Mm. What happens to Middle Eastern studies now that um, historians do accept historians of the Middle East? I think we, we need to redefine what we do and what the role of centers is. And I think the Bill Polk thing is where um, you're mainly providers of money and travel fellowships and a, and a platform for, you know, if somebody big from the Middle East comes through, then you can have an audience. Um, but not, um, and we, we have some vague training thing for MAs and so on. But I, don't, I think we should recognize that that's what we do best. And that Middle East, centers, uh, Middle East studies can look after itself, I think. I mean, I notice there used to be, um, I belong to something called the ha Harvard Academy of um, area and international studies and the idea of Henry Rusovsky who started it, who was an economist who went to Japan during the war was that he was an economist but he didn't know Japanese properly so you should have some way of teaching area economists their languages but now the people who come to Harvard and ask to be graduate students in Middle East studies, as I say they all appear to have lived in the Middle East like you. They all appear to know Arabic and they also appear to have some understanding of the social sciences. So I don't think that's something we need to do anymore. We have, I think we take that for granted. That just happens in this wonderful way. I don't know if it happens in the same way in England. 
Um, and they've been, like you, they've travelled in the Middle East too. So we, what do we do? Well, we, you know, we provide something that the university can't do. Money, access, training courses, but not, um, we should never be a department. I don't think, departments have a completely, something I learned from Bashar Dumani at uh, Brown. You know, departments live in a completely different world and you get stuck in all kinds of things and they're very traditional and so on. So be a, just, we have to be centers. You know, I think America would, you know, centers of excellence maybe, centers of facilitation, centers of, I mean, I think you also, when you get in, you go in the door of a Middle East center, you sort of, feel, you should feel that you're in a slightly different world. Our teachers of Arabic at the center, I've said this a million times, are in the roof. The people you see when you go to our Middle East center in Harvard are, young American ladies who have never, don't even know what the Middle East is, who are just the administrators. You should go in and you should hear Arabic spoken and you should have plenty of Arabic films. It should be a center of Arabness or uh, up to a point Israeliness or whatever. That's I think what we can do. A sense that you know, to enter the Middle East is to enter a different world. Different languages, different practices not just um, the object that we view at the end of through our uh, the end of a telescope or something rather strange like looking into an aquarium and seeing lots of strange fish and the other duty we have I haven't said this but I'm sure I've said it to you when parts of the Middle East are in confusion like in Syria and so on we should recognize that our Syrian students need special pastoral you know we, we uh, uh, looking after. We should put on things about Syria that allow them to speak about their own lives and try to remember. It's difficult in England. I mean, if we had a revolution, it was a very long time ago. And in America, they had a revolution. You, know, you, you have to be imaginative about this and try and understand what it's like to be out of your country when a revolution is going on. And you don't know what's going to happen next. And in the case of Egypt, People are talking to each other in ways they have never talked to each other before, vilifying each other. Um, that's also, I think, something we can do and should do. Your microphone. I'm a professor trip student at mm. SOAS. Um, there was quite a strong debate last uh, week or over the last weeks about mm. having all the Israeli center studies in in yes. uh, British universities. Um, American universities are quite famous for this and I wonder what you think about uh, Israeli studies. I think it's much better to have Israeli studies than um, Zionists appointing people to infiltrate um, and, and decide that this center or that center is anti-Zionist. It's much more positive to study Israel than to attack other people for attacking Israel. So I applaud Israeli studies. And of course, it's very interesting to see. It's, it doesn't, it isn't a well-defined field. You know, I mean, it's usually part of the history of Zionism or Jewish history or something or other. But as a history of a state, and I applaud it because very few people in Palestine, Israel, Palestine, remember that they were a British Mandate territory. And if you look at the Israeli parliamentary practice, it's British parliamentary practice. The first laws are all British laws. Quite a lot of them are still there. So unless you understand Israel as a colony a sort of colony, a mandated colony, you don't understand a great deal about um, 
how Israeli electoral system works and why they still have one single national constituency. You know, you have 100 members of the Knesset, you used to more now, and they constitute a national constituency. There are no local constituencies. You don't vote for somebody in Tel Aviv, and that's enormously important. And why didn't that happen? So good for Israeli studies, I say, and good for Egyptian studies, and good for any other studies, but uh, particularly Israeli studies. I think it's a positive thing. My Carl name is. Stop quite soon, and my, yes. my sister will demand the. Uh, Shouldn't we go home? No, we don't have to go home. Yes. My question is related to your question that who are the audience of our writing? Yes. And I have an observation. Is about, it's about Arab researchers, students, professors who mm. are working in Middle Eastern institutes and centers, mm. at least in UK. And I noticed that we are rarely, I'm, I'm not generalizing, but mm. it's my observation, we rarely refer to um, uh, intellectuals who write in Arabic. Mm. And uh, I don't know, maybe it's most, uh, more credible to refer to English-speaking intellectuals writing about the Middle East or, or those who are producing the history mm. of the Middle East. So how, how do you explain this? Is it political, moral problems or something else? Why professors who are working, including uh, Arabs or who have mm. uh, Arab origin, why do do not encourage Arab students those who speak Arabic. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't blame non-Arabic speakers yeah. to not to refer to uh, literatures written mm -hmm. in Arabic. Why um, professors working in Middle Eastern Studies centers um, do not encourage Arab students, Arab researchers, to refer to what's written in Arabic? And this, of course, creates a huge gap between mm -hmm. the knowledge produced in Arabic mm -hmm. and the knowledge uh, produced in English. Well, I think, I think it's mostly laziness. I mean, it's, it is quite difficult to keep up with um, what's written in the Arab world. We can read the press, but one, you know, um, they're not, let's say, things as easy as the TLS or something or other, the Times Literary Supplement. There isn't a digest of the latest stuff from the Arab world. I mean, I think that the, the great, the future lies with uh, Bassam Haddad and the Jadalia people who could do this quite easily. Um, in out of wherever they are, um, just south of uh, DC. Jadalia, everyone knows Jadalia? Bassam Haddad, yes. I mean, that's terrific. And they can do translations and they can do everything and they can give you. You know, I imagine if you wanted a bibliography of the latest political fiction, fi uh, fiction coming out of the Middle East and or the latest political poetry, they will give it to you. So it's not, it's. You know, I mean, I'm far too old to go in for all that kind of stuff. But, um, as, um, uh, but um, you know, it's not impossible. I think you, you know, I've, in America we have something called office hours. You should have that. Do you have office hours? We have office hours. Go to office hours. Demand things. Knock on the door. Say, I want a bib trip, Professor Sir. I want a bibliography of this, that, and the other. Or guide me. Or go to the, I mean, there used to be the Egyptian Cultural Center, of course, and, you know, there were other ways you could do that. Not to speak of wherever our friend uh, who started the um, um, Institute of Arab Research, um, the Iraqi. Anyway, where is the, I think they're in England now, aren't they? The thing that was in Beirut, the Institute, it was Arab anyway, 
I mean, ask them. Say, demand. Say, go. Yes. <laughs> I think we have one time for yes. one last question. Yes. Good evening, sir. My name is Fadi Bshara. I'm an international relations student and also a frequent reader of Al Hayat. Now, um, since the assassination of uh, Kamal Mruwa, there's been a substantial shift in uh, the newspapers. Maybe not its commitment to ideology yeah. as such, but maybe it's uh, sort of organization through paradigm. Now, I think my question splits into two here, and it's what do you hold as the future for, for, the, for the newspaper, for the broadsheet? And um, secondly, just in general, for, 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 you know, for journalism in, the, in, in Europe, concerned with the Middle East, what, what do you hold, what sort of future do they hold, in your opinion? It's a terrific, interesting story, the Hayat story. And, uh, I remember being introduced to Mount by uh, Rasan Salabe and when it all started and he took me to their presses here in London and they had the most advanced presses in the world at that stage I am. Um, uh, but they also had a very interesting way of running a newspaper in which um, people were responsible for pages so if anything happened you know if suddenly something pro-Zionist happened on the sports pages and you wished to complain you didn't complain to the editor, who was that nice Palestinian gentleman whose name I forget, who just did the op-ed page and opinion and so on. And then if you, so it was a good way of dealing with the problems from the Arab world, because if you are an Arab newspaper, you will um, get complaints, of course, from governments. Then it was born by, they were by the, the General Prince Khaled of Saudi Arabia. And I think those of us who write for it are forced to apply a kind of, um, self-censorship, which is not good at all. The other thing, it do, as you certainly know, it doesn't have a letters page. Um, so I never know. They won't tell me what rude things people say about it when I write in higher. So, you know, there are good things and bad things about that model, but I think you could, you could, do, you could use that model well if you were starting a newspaper outside the Arab world. Uh, of course, starting it inside the Arab world is a completely different business, but uh, so, I mean, I think the Haya is, you know, for what it's worth, it's got a wonderful record. They now have an index, I've learned. I'm trying to collect all my columns, but only for the last four or five years. It was pretty haphazard for a while. But they do pay, they pay regularly. They, I haven't, <laughs> I tried to organize a strike and a go slow because I'm still paid what I was paid in 1986 <laughs> but they say that Prince Khaled you know it's, it's um, it was um, 200 pounds and it still is 200 pounds 350 dollars or whatever but they said oh no we can't do that Prince Khaled will close us down or sack us all so I haven't been able to organize collective action within the higher office which has now moved to Beirut anyway isn't it? so it's that's that you know, that's all I hold against them. It's, it's a wonderful way for speaking to my friends in the Arab world. Just wonderful. Roger, thank you very much. I want to thank you on behalf of all of us. Really. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you, everybody.